HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Mitchell Davis, host of Taste Matters. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we'll be talking with one of my all-time favorite guests um, and your hero and mine, Marion Nessel. Uh, Marion, in case you don't know her, is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at, the New, professor, at New York University. Her, and her many books include The Seminal Food Politics, Why Calories Count, Pet Food Politics, Safe Food, The Politics of Food Safety, and many more. She blogs at foodpolitics.com, something which I review on a weekly basis, if not bi-weekly. Um, Marion, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming back. You are indeed one of my very favorite guests, I must say. Oh, isn't that nice? Glad oh, yeah. to be here. <laughs> well, it's good to have somebody who, with whom you can just have a conversation about pretty much any topic and know that you're covered in terms of their knowledge base, and you are that person. So um, one of the things that, of course, caught my eye, and I know it caught yours, was that the FDA has finally finalized their rules on menu and uh, you know labeling menus with calorie counts. What do you think of those rules? Did they go far enough? I think they went so much further than I expected them to that I just absolutely cheered. <laughs> um, they they were a real surprise. Um, there was so much political pressure to make them weak and not apply to very many venues that I just can't believe that the FDA was actually able to get away with doing the right thing. I was amazed, too. Let's just recap for listeners if they haven't noticed um, the articles about this. Like, So um, calorie counts are now going to be labeled in, um, obviously, quick service restaurants, um, most restaurant menus, right? Um, uh, movie theaters, where movie else? Theaters, Vending machines? Parlors, vending machines, the whole work. Yeah. Not immediately, but within six months to a year. Oh, really? See, I read a year to two years, depending on what the venue was. And, well, that um, too. And I was wondering what you thought, like, in a year, a lot can happen within a year or two years, and I was wondering if you felt there was any, um, uh, an opportunity for, you know, lobbyists to push back against those rules and maybe change them between now and then. What do you think? Well, the pizza 
groups of people are particularly fierce about this. And, of course, they won an enormous victory over the school meal requirements. The famous uh, ketchup is not ketchup, but tomato sauce is a vegetable. Pizza is a vegetable. Um, They didn't like the Department of Agriculture's rules for school meals that required that if you were going to count tomato sauce as a vegetable, you had to have at least a quarter of a cup of it. Uh And they said, "Uh uh-uh. And they went to Congress, and they got Congress to put language in an appropriations bill expressly forbidding the the Department of Agriculture from making any such rule about tomato sauce on pizza. Unbelievable. This is a Congress that can't do anything. It's completely paralyzed. But it did that. It's micromanaging USDA school food rules. Well, I mean, who's I mean, I making money on that? Yeah. But they won that one, and they flushed with success. They're going right back to Congress. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm surprised the dairy lobby, given the cheese factor, didn't uh, chime in on this stuff, too, right? I mean, well, I think they don't care so much about that. Um, it's really the pizza people are really concerned about it because the uh, – they don't want their customers knowing how many calories are in those pizzas. No, of course not. You know, the thicker I don't want the to pizza, know. <laughs> the thicker the pizza and the more cheese it has on it, the more calories it has. I'm sorry. I know. And you're breaking oh. my heart to think that I pizza know. can't be counted as a vegetable, Mary. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so sad. It's so sad. But, you know, sort of along those lines, I mean, not specifically that. I mean, this is what I mean about having a guest with whom you can discuss anything. The other thing I picked up on your blog and elsewhere was that Brazil has recently published its own version of nutritional guidelines. Speaking of Congress, getting into the act of USDA, etc., and those guidelines are strikingly different from the United States. I mean, yeah, for one thing, they're about food. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I, I'll just quickly like zip through them because probably, you know, unless you're a regular reader of Marion's blog or you follow this stuff obsessively the way I do, you probably wouldn't have noticed this. But um, rule number one is make natural or minimally processed foods the basis of your diet. Now, what is our rule number one? I should have looked it up. Do you know it? Oh, I, I don't remember. They're so It's buried. not that, though. <laughs> oh, no. It certainly is not. Um, there is in the 60 or 70-page document something about um, it's better if your foods aren't quite as highly processed as um, many are. Yeah. But it's so buried and so done in euphemisms that you would never know about it. And you're not even, as a consumer uh, and as a, you know, a potential food creator, uh, you're not even sort of encouraged to read those guidelines to find out what they are. I mean, you see the, the we have our, our lovely schematic of the plate with, you know, sort of the various food groups divided up, but there isn't a lot more information beyond that as far as I'm aware well, you're of. Not so, well, you're not supposed to. Uh, the dietary <laughs> guidelines are meant for policymakers and nutritionists yeah. like me. They're not meant for the general public. The general public is assumed to be too stupid to understand the nuances of those sorts of things. Um, So the food guide is produced for the general public, uh, and there you have it. And I'm hoping that the Dietary Guidelines Committee that's working now, the enormously controversial Dietary Guidelines Committee that's 
hard at work right now is going to do something more dramatic. The person who was behind the Brazilian dietary guidelines mm-hmm. um, gave a talk at a big conference at Washington on what they were doing, and lots of people came up afterwards and said, oh, I wish we could do this. Yeah. And maybe we will. Who knows? Well, maybe. But I mean, I, you know, I you have to wonder, and this is something that <clears throat> I would love to get funding to study this, but... <clears throat> is, you know, to go around to different countries and look at how much influence um, lobbyists have on legislation that has an impact on food choices. And so, I mean, is Brazil in the same sort of lockhold of of uh, lobbying interests that we are that dictate so many of our food uh, selections, if not choices? Do you well, know that? it is, but Brazil also has a very strong um, public health advocacy community mm-hmm. among professors and academics, and they are so forceful about what will happen in Brazil if people gain weight, get type 2 diabetes, and land in the healthcare system right. that Brazil is very eager to head that off. And that was really the driving force behind this was real concern that if something isn't done now, they're going to have to deal with an impossible situation later. Which we are dealing with now. I mean, you'd think that we would provide a roadmap for this kind of thing. You know, I'm sure that's what your colleagues in Brazil are hoping to, uh, you know, to avoid. But it's just, uh, you know, it's amazing when governments sort of fail to uh, see the evidence before their eyes of certain policy um, initiatives and and not correct for them. They do see the evidence, but they are either unwilling or unable to Mm -hmm. do anything and to act on that evidence because of the very, very strong lobbying by the by the industries that are affected by these kinds of um, health advocacy you rules know, and things. Marion, I'm sure you remember the editorial that, um, uh, that, or the op-ed piece that Michael Pollan wrote a couple of years ago, I think it was now. Um, this was before Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was passed. And he, was, he made the point that if insurance companies got involved, um, you know, on some basic level in terms of... Uh, you know, addressing these issues of, of obesity, of, of heart disease, of all the other uh, sort of type 2 diabetes, all the other diseases that come along with, with poor diets and, and overweight. And, and if they were involved, then we would see changes in policy vis-a-vis food. Do you, oh, do you have a response for, for a second? You don't? You think that the insurance that. industry you is... You have to be a non-profit um, HMO to take that kind of stance. I mean, Kaiser Permanente is the best example I uh-huh. can think of of a health maintenance organization that figured out a long time ago that if they could prevent some, some even a small percentage of the uh, enormous amount of money that they had to spend on care for people who were really, really sick. If they could prevent people from being really, really sick, they would have lots of money to build more hospitals and hire more doctors and pay people better and do lots of other things. And that's why Kaiser Permanente is building gardens at every one of their hospitals and teaching people about healthy eating and doing everything they possibly can to get people on a healthier track so they won't be a drain on the system later on. Right. But the insurance companies are for profit. And because of the bizarre way in which our for-profit system works, insurance companies make more money the way it is now. And they're not very eager to change. And look at what happened in the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, they essentially, they absolutely refused to allow the Affordable Care Act to go into any kind of single-payer yes. system because right. they wanted to get the benefits of all of that. And look at the farm bill. The big winners in the farm bill are the insurance companies. Indeed they are, certainly, especially the crop insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, to go back for a second to these, um, thank you for clarifying that for me, and then um, we'll have to send that on to Michael Pollan. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure that's what he meant, but anyway. No, I think it is what he meant. I mean, that was I what mean, I he understood. Was probably thinking about Kaiser. He, yes, because he lives in California, so that's what he's right. familiar with. He's certainly not familiar with Empire yeah, Blue I mean, Cross Blue people, Shield. Yeah, <laughs> people who live in California think Kaiser is normal. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, they just. I feel sorry for them. I mean, <laughs> they haven't seen the real yes, world. I'm, I miss it. I grew up on Kaiser. I and bet. I certainly miss it. I know. Some of my best friends live out in California, and it's just like their insurance stuff is like. I mean, now that I have the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, I'm I'm much happier. But um, but uh, I was always amazed at you know six weeks of leave or you know like if you had an operation that that was covered, home health care covered, like when you come home from the hospital. You know, this kind of thing just simply did not exist in uh, the world of normal for-profit insurance. Um, here are some of the other rules that just blew my mind. Develop, exercise, and share culinary skills. Once again, this is from the Brazilian Nutritional Guidelines. Um, we, you know, we don't even that doesn't even cross our radar as a nation or as a national uh, initiative, health initiative. Um, what do you think about that? How can we make that happen? Cooking, that radical activity. Yeah, right. If you cooked, you wouldn't be buying food products. Yeah. <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> That's un-American. It would be very un-American. Um, and plan to make your to plan your time to make food and eating important in your life. Well, actually, I have to disagree with that because I think we we make eating way too important in this country. I mean, basically, we never stop eating, right? I mean, isn't that sort of your point with you know the food available in a drugstore, in a you know in a liquor store? I mean, there's food everywhere. You can't escape it. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we have to eat it all the time. No, but um, we do. But I, but I do think what they're trying to do is to um, either maintain or restore Brazilian food culture to something more traditional um, and less westernized and less product-based. And whether they will succeed or not, I don't know. Yeah. But their guidelines set a standard for lots of others. Well, the guidelines, I mean, to me as a, a layperson, um, you know, they suggest to me that there is uh, sort of a greater purpose um, at work, meaning that the government is actually thinking about policies that will affect their population in a good way as opposed to policies that will affect their corporations in a good way, which is my, you know, this is my new mantra. It's like we govern for our corporations. Uh, other countries govern for their populations. And um, and I think that until we can find legislators who are able to, well, until we overturn Citizens United, essentially, we are doomed, I think, to continue to have what we've got. Um, let's let's move on, though, and talk a little bit about genetically modified organisms, um, because, of course, that, again, is, is, you know, big labeling issues all over the country. Um, I think, has Oregon passed their labeling law? Did no, it failed by about 800 votes. Right. And I think there may still, I don't know if the final count is in, 
there may still be some absentee ballots, but it's so close mm-hmm. that they're going to have to do a recount. Oh, interesting. You know, um, I, I don't know what to think about genetically modified organisms. I've read quite a bit about them. Um, you know, I my big problem with them is that only a few companies control the seed stock for the rest of the world. And that to me yes, is sort isn't of that a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, sort of so so the the fantastic activist Vandana Shiva calls it, you know, the means to world domination. Um, mm-hmm. but the agricultural companies call it the means to feeding nine billion people by two thousand fifty. And so I, I don't really know where the mean is. Do you have insight on that? What do you think? Well I think it's very difficult to sort that out because mm-hmm. there's so little research, independent research that goes on about genetically modified foods. Um the, you know, I'm fond of saying they get caught in the risk communication literature between um, science-based approaches and approaches based on ethics or values that look at very different considerations. Right. And from a strictly science-based point of view, if they don't kill people, they're fine. What are you complaining about? Um, whereas everybody else may have the kinds of concerns that you have about domination of the food supply or have other kinds of moral, ethical, or other, you know, whatever kinds of objections mm-hmm. to the way they're going. They just don't like the way that they just don't like the whole idea. Um, but I think the biotechnology industry made an enormous mistake, several very serious mistakes mm-hmm. right at the beginning. I was on the Food Advisory Committee in 1994 when they came up for FDA approval there were four of us who were consumer representatives on the committee, and we were united in saying, you got to do a couple of things here. First of all, you've got to label these things right. so that consumers will have a choice. Um, and this was in 1994 when there was not mm-hmm. nearly so much opposition to them as right. there is now. And then you need complete com- transparency about what there is. There needs to be some process by which the companies go through the FDA and get some kind of approval. And if the industry had FDA approval and labeled them, it would add to the credibility of the products and people wouldn't be so suspicious whether there is or isn't anything wrong about it. And the other thing we were really concerned about was that the FDA said it was forbidden from discussing anything other than safety, that the only issue on which it could judge uh, genetically modified foods was on their safety, and there was no evidence at the time that they were unsafe. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't ever prove that a product is safe. To prove it unsafe, you have to know whether people are consuming it or not, and right. that's hard to do if they're not labeled. Yeah. So they, you know, it's kind of in a catch-22. So I thought it was that not labeling was just a huge mistake, and yes. the industry is paying for it, and they deserve everything they get because they totally manipulated that situation, and I saw it. Yeah, absolutely. But what's so interesting is that they are labeling in in Western in, in Western Europe and in other countries. You know, where mm-hmm. so you know so that so then you have to ask yourself, well, why why you know now they've unleashed this you know Pandora's box of of consumer suspicion and fear and mistrust. Um, and as you say, if they had labeled it from the get go, they probably wouldn't have had anywhere near the amount of trouble um, well, selling we, these actually, foods. Actually, we the- have. Proof- that that's the case because mm-hmm. they were labeled in Britain in the mid 90s. Yeah. 
Um, and the companies went through, uh, this is genetically modified tomatoes. For a long time, I had a can of genetically modified tomatoes. And it said, made from genetically modified tomatoes in big letters right mm-hmm. on the front of the can. It was a little can of tomato paste. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it exploded, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, as these cans tend to do, right. uh, but they had no trouble selling them until Monsanto started doing dirty tricks in Great Britain and sending, they sent corn and soybeans that weren't genetically modified. The British didn't like it. And that was the end of it. The retailers said, we don't have to sell this stuff. Right. And that's what's happening here is the retailers don't want to get caught in the middle of it. Sure. Um, Who wants uh, to be on the wrong side of that political battle if you're fighting for, you know, fighting for market share? Right, and you don't need, I mean, nobody needs genetically modified foods. We have foods. Yeah. We don't need them genetically. I mean, that was the other mistake that I thought the industry made was by overhyping. Um, the benefits to mankind and the or humankind, mm-hmm. and the the industry f- has failed to produce products that have a a direct consumer benefit that can't be obtained anywhere else. Um, they're terrific for growing industrial crops, mm-hmm. and they have been adopted by farmers very very rapidly, so that essentially all corn, soybeans, uh, cotton, canola. Rice, yeah. Uh, and sugar beets are genetically modified unless stated otherwise. You have to assume that they are. Farmers love them because they, or did love them, did. because they could dump Roundup on Roundup-resistant crops, and the weeds would get killed, and the crops would flourish. Right. But unfortunately, also as predicted in 1994. Absolutely. I feel like I feel like Cassandra. Nobody listened to me. I was just um, going to say, you are the Cassandra of the food business. I mean, honestly. But nobody, you know, everybody in the consumer representatives were saying in 1994, you're going to have a big problem with weed resistance if you're using this much Roundup. Yeah. And every, they just said, poo, poo, poo. You're Cassandra. You're, you know, the whole thing about Cassandra is that nobody believes you. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the, and there were there was plenty of evidence already in 1994 yeah. that there was going that there was going to be resistance to Roundup. And now it's just a terrible problem. Well, now and we have going, uh, 2,4-D and and, and, the, and the new one, and we have a new one, yeah. which is a combination of glyphosate and 2,4-D, and that's a new name. Right. Um, I uh, I also yeah I mean I had Chuck Brenbrook on a few well several times but he conducted I think a 15 year long study which concluded last year and you know definitively proved that these uh, weed resistant um, or rather uh, glyphosate resistant weeds are flourishing and that you know the the amount of pesticides or herbicides needed to grow crops is, has exponentially exploded again. yeah and yeah. the other thing that i noticed um recently um this is a little bit of an aside because i know we have to take a quick break in a second but i just wanted to bring up the fact that um the uh, levels of glyphosate and the levels of 2,4-D um have never been um measured by the fda in other words the safe rate foods are are becoming contaminated because we're using so much more of these products and that's something that um, um, is going to bear further investigation. Um, but let's let's take a quick break, Jackie, and uh, we will be right back with Dr. Marion Nessel talking more about what's going on in the world of food today. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? 
Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Posting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Oh, yeah. Nice spot there. I like that. Um, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking today with Dr. Marion Nessel from New York University. Um, and we were um, discussing GMOs, but we're going to move on because um, you were a speaker at the recent Food for Tomorrow conference at Stone Barns, which happened a few weeks ago. And... Um, I, I wanted to like just review that with you, but also my favorite quote from that entire event, which I did not attend, I'm sorry to say, um, was from Sam Cass from the White House, who it sounded to me as if he were saying that if we don't work with the big boys, essentially we're just, you know, forgive my French, pissing in the wind. Um, what did you think of his quote? Well, I wasn't there for that. Oh, I only went. Oh. <laughs> to, I only went to the first day uh-huh. um, and didn't go back the second day. Uh-huh. Um, so I missed that, but I and I would have had to have heard it in context. Right. To uh, I mean, I will say that there were a lot of big boys there, um, and there were plenty of major agribusiness representatives who were there. I actually didn't get too much of a sense of who was at the meeting, mm-hmm. but uh, but I know there were some there. And it was a very expensive meeting. They started out by saying that it had cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I wasn't Why? being paid. I have no idea. Huh. I wasn't. Be, I have no idea. I, I mean, they had to. I well, guess they had to feed I, and I house I everybody. Be, I guess. I don't yeah, know. I wasn't being paid, and I wasn't housed. So right. um, I don't. I don't really know what the expenses are, and I don't know very much about the meeting. Um, I was on a panel and spoke for a few minutes. That mm. was all. Mm-hmm. What was your panel about, Mary? Um, I had the hard to know exactly. 
Okay. I, I mean, it was run by Michael Moss, and he talked about his work. Yeah. And there was a terrific speaker from the Monell Institute who showed wonderful videos of babies being fed sugar and broccoli and the different mm-hmm. expressions on their faces. It was hilarious. <laughs> and they were just marvelous videos. That was my favorite thing. Yeah, that sounds pretty um, good. And I remember that from feeding my own children. So I guess our panel was about uh, sugars and what to do about them and mm-hmm. the food industry. It was I don't know. I was I never really understood what it, what it was about. All right. Well, we um, can we can move on if it wasn't really like a, a tremendously relevant event. But I did want to ask one more question about it, just because following up on Cass's remark a couple of weeks ago, I had George Faison on from DeBraga and Spitler. Now he's uh-huh. he runs a um, you might know him, and he I runs do. a yeah he runs a wonderful meat distributor uh, ship with uh, Mark uh, Sarazen, and he he made the point we were talking about all of the new sort of small producers. Producers uh, who are producing cattle, sheep, et cetera, up, upstate New York and throughout the the New England area, and <clears throat> I said, do you think that eventually, you know, those small niche producers will have an impact on the way the bigger uh, companies like Carson, uh, uh, Cargill, Tyson, et cetera, um, are going to raise? And he was absolutely adamant. He was like, absolutely not. They don't care what you're doing. <laughs> No, it's like they have to feed their beast, which is these huge processing plants. And, you know, if they don't find the market here for it, they're just, uh, you know, finding markets, ex, you know, outside of the United States. And that, and that you know, right now there's the whole Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade agreement being oh, um, yeah, let's examined. let's talk about chicken. Yeah, let's talk about chicken. Yeah, go you for know, it. Which is the most incredible thing I've ever heard of, where we are now um, raising and killing chickens. Nine billion them. a year. And freezing them, sending them to China for processing, and then they send them back to us. Ah, yeah, I have heard that. I, I should follow up on that, actually. That's a good story for me. Um, I mean, I find that just mind-boggling. Well, it's mind-boggling. It's cheaper to, do, cheaper to do it that way than to do it here. Yeah, which is, you know, in and of itself kind of a weird thing. And then, yeah, and, and then it says something about the value of these birds, that all of that travel does not you know, increase their price exponentially. I mean, even if they are going by boat, which they are, um, you know, it's just, it's an astonishing admission. And it also says something about how, to me anyway, and, and correct me if, I, if you think I'm wrong, Marion, but it says something to me about, uh, you know, yet again, off, jobs being offshored. Um, you know, I feel like more and more of that kind of production is going to end up being overseas um, in, co- in countries that are, uh, you know, less concerned with food safety, et cetera. Not that we're all well, that concerned the, with it. Yeah. I mean, that's the big threat whenever you want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the response is, well, the jobs are going to get lost because it'll be too expensive yeah. and we'll have to go offshore. I mean, that was what NAFTA did, and yes. that's what all of these trade agreements do is uh, shift the jobs offshore as far as I can see. Yes, exactly. And and with typically less scrutiny in terms, certainly in terms of food safety. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, that's, it's very concerning. And, and, you know, when we sold, uh, when the United States uh, allowed the Smithfield sale to go through with um, first Shuanghui, and then I believe the company was then sold by Shuanghui to yet another Chinese company uh, with whom we have even less familiarity and who will, um, you know, will be dictating uh, you know, the workers' situations and so forth. I mean, everyone in the meat industry was like, oh, well, don't worry about union contracts. We'll still have the union contracts. But as Ted Genoway has pointed out in his excellent book, The Chain, those union contracts are meaning less and less as we go forward. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But, you know, maybe we 
Maybe we will export some good habits as well as some bad. Well, plenty of work for advocates to do. Plenty of work for advocates to do. Exactly. Now, I have one last policy question, and then we're going to have um, 10 minutes devoted to food fads because I love doing food fads with you. Okay, so if you could wave your wand, Marion Nessel, what is the biggest change you would like to see in the food system, and what do you think the path is toward that goal? Good heavens, I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, I would like to see, I guess the one that just leaps to mind, besides overturning Citizens United, which it seems to me is the absolute first priority for anybody who wants to do anything in the food system, um, would be to develop an agriculture policy that promotes public health and link agriculture and health policy. Uh, These are very remote kinds of things. I mean, that's one of the reasons why soda taxes are so exciting, Mm -hmm. is you actually can make progress on these really small points when you're trying to figure out how to deal with the really important ones like election campaign laws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, you know, I can't say I would disagree with you. I mean, I do think that overturning Citizens United is the number one priority uh, for any you know, citizen going forward. It's like, until we do that, uh, it'll be the Koch brothers and their ilk who call all the shots. Okay, so let's play food fads with Dr. Marion Nessel. All right, Marion, <laughs> why is whole milk now the new big thing after years of being told I need to drink skim, including my children? Well, there's been an enormous pressure publicly to try to get whole fats back into the diet again. I'm not sure it's a great idea. Um, fat may not instantly cause heart disease, but it's certainly got twice the calories of either protein or carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that, a, you know, I think whole milk is fine. I've always thought whole milk was fine, just not in large quantities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, prefer, I prefer my calories from other sources. Yes, alcohol in my case. Um, but I do drink <laughs> whole milk. <laughs> yeah. But that's why okay. I never eat dessert. <laughs> yeah. um, now, here's another thing that I read about a lot. Functional foods. What? What are some of these ingredients that are being touted and why are they assigned magical properties? Is there any credible science behind any of this? Especially since, as you pointed out many times, supplements are pretty much a big hoodwink scheme. Yeah, I mean, functional foods are about marketing. Yeah, what is um, a functional they're practi- food? They're practically the only way that you can sell food products these days. And functional foods are the, it's the word given to foods that have some uh, nutritional thing added to them above and beyond what they already contain. And the most obvious functional ingredients are vitamins, minerals, omega-3s, probiotics, mm-hmm. fiber. Those so like the, chia. Those are sort of the big ones. Chia seeds are a functional food? Well, no, that, no chia seeds are a superfood. That's a separate <laughs> category. In quotation marks. Thank you. In quotation marks. Um, it's, uh, Who decides they, that these things are going to be superfoods? Like, marketer. this is a marketing this is thing. marketing. But is there any it's, science whatsoever? I mean, you study well, this any stuff. Vegetable has, any vegetable has vitamins, minerals, and fiber. They're right. all superfoods. Right. So, but, um, but, And some have more of one thing or another. And if the marketers hit on what it is then they can sell it. I mean, you put the word antioxidant on something and people think it doesn't have any calories. And that's been demonstrated, by the way. Really? That if you label a food with a functional ingredient, organic, um, or low in in whatever, people think it's lower in calories. It's not necessarily. 
Well, since you burst my bubble about pizza not being a vegetable, I don't know I'm who to sorry. trust now. <laughs> okay, next question. Cleanse, cleansing, cleansing products. We're not talking about Ajax. We are talking about entire swaths of the food industry that are devoted to creating like juice cleanses, natural cleanses. What the hell are we cleansing? Don't we have an uh, elimination bowel, system? If pardon the expression. But we have uh, a we very functional elimination during, system. Yeah, if we can talk about this during lunchtime, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the, um, the way digestion works is that it takes the human digestive tract is capable of taking practically anything that you put into it mm -hmm. and turning it into something nutritious. Yes. Um, most of what we excrete, contrary to public wisdom, is bacteria. Mm. Probably 80%. Wow. Unless you're on a hugely high-fiber diet. Wow. Maybe even more. It's, it's solid-packed bacteria, trillions and trillions and trillions of bacteria. How cool and is that? They don't clean. They don't clean. They're, they're there. They multiply with anything that you give them. But I if thought they were good. Them, well, some bacteria are good and some are not good. It depends. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, if you starve somebody and don't give them anything, then there will still be bacteria there. Uh -huh. oh, the other, oh, the other component of feces is discarded cells from the intestinal tract. Oh, so, so it's not food waste. It's this very little food waste. The human digestive tract is very efficient. Well, yeah, um, exactly. So, so there's very, very little food waste. What is, so what it is, it's cells from the lining of the intestine, which turn over very rapidly, and so there's a lot of losses of those, plus bacteria that feed on them and anything else that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, so cleansing... Um, if you want to cleanse, then you do bowel prep like you would do for colonoscopy. Yes, colonoscopy. my stomach and you is drink never two so liters flat. Of Gatorade and some stuff that cleans you out. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Well, so so these these juice or you know diet these supplementary you know these these bottles of goo basically that they're that they promote as something as a cleanse. That's not actually going to cleanse you because it's not it's not flushing. It's adding well, to... Well, it, it, I mean, water is flushing. If it's yeah. got nutrients in it, they're going to be digested. Right. If they can't be digested by the human digestive tract, they're going to be digested by bacteria. Yeah. Um, so why would anyone need they, to do anything if, but a fleets? I mean, why would you need to go on a five-day cleanse? You don't need to do anything. The bowel cleans itself. Okay. So thank you very much. So this is yet another example of marketing. Is Absolutely. that what you're saying? Absolutely. So you are not improving your health or digestion by routinely engaging. Well, it depends on what else you eat. If it's better than what you usually eat, yes, you are. <laughs> okay, good caveat. But you know, for the for the for the, I mean, the people who tend to do these cleanses, in my opinion, I mean, in my experience, tend to be people who eat quite well anyway. And that's Absolutely. why they're all worried about their bowels and what's in there mm -hmm. and what isn't in there. Anyway, I just wanted to clarify that because it always yeah, really I just irritates wish everybody me. Could be just, everybody could just be happy and eat what they like. That would be so nice. I know, exactly. Okay, my last question in the food fads thing, although I could go on and on, is paleo diet. What do you think of the paleo diet? Well, I love the paleo diet because it makes me laugh every time I yeah. think of it. The biggest, <laughs> the biggest intellectual problem in nutrition is trying to figure out what people eat. Mm -hmm. And it is really challenging to find out what people ate yesterday, let alone 15,000 or 50,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and there are lots and lots of hypotheses about what people 
then based on archaeologic evidence um, and other kinds of evidence. And occasionally somebody will, somebody will emerge from a glacier and you can look at the interior, at the contents of their stomach and see what they had in right. it. Um, and, you know, the idea that it was mostly meat, I think has been pretty well discredited. One of the difficulties is that bones last through the eons better than than plant substances. So you don't, sure. from archaeologic evidence, you don't really have a good idea of the balance between plant foods and animal foods. I think people ate whatever they could get their hands on. Me too. And and since their um, since their lifespan was roughly 30 years or something like that, um, they weren't exactly what we would consider to be paragons of health. Well, yeah. And also the other thing is that people assume that hunting uh, was something that, you know, you did every day and yielded results every day. And um, I think that anyone uh, who has ever tried hunting just for sport um, or anyone who has ever studied in any ethnographic, you know, ethnic tribe that subsists primarily on uh, hunting and gathering sees that a hunt is not not 100% as successful. And then you go weeks and weeks without catching an animal. Am I right? I think so. I mean, it's hard to know. So it's very, very hard to know what the, how strong the evidence is that backs up the contentions of the paleo people. But they like meat, and that's fine. Yeah. You can eat a healthy, di- you can eat a healthy diet by eating, eating meat. It's yeah. really okay. Yeah, it is. It is. No, I just think, you know, I mean, I look at these food fads, and I'm old enough now to have seen quite a few of them. And, uh, you know, it's just every year brings a new and even mm-hmm. weirder, uh, you know, permutation to what people think should or should not be consumed on a regular well, basis. It just fortunately, nobody can remember the old ones, so they can recycle them. Right now, the ones that are low in sugar are hot. Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems like a good thing. I mean, we all know yeah, sugar everybody is not would, your... everybody, everybody would be healthier eating less sugar. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Marion, I guess we should wrap it up here. It's been a great pleasure, as always. Um, a reminder that Marion blogs at foodpolitics.com. Are, do you have any uh, appearances coming up that people should know about? No, I'm going on sabbatical in the spring, <gasps> and I'm disappearing. And you're writing a book. Yeah, I'm almost finished. Really? What's this book about? Yeah, this is a book about food advocacy in the soda industry and is being published by Oxford University Press and will come out in September 2015. We will be scheduling time for you then, for sure. That will be fun. Yeah, I'll enjoy and I look forward to reading a copy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to my sponsor, Whole Foods, and to my engineer, Jack Inslee. As always, we'll see you next week uh, for another great show. Stay tuned. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.